You're listening to episode one of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Plazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about who we are, what got us interested in ecology, and where we hope to take the show. Start uh, with a quick introduction of who we are and and why we're doing this and what brought us here and why it is that we are interested in ecology and what are what our future plans are. So maybe if uh, Kyle, actually, do you wanna do you wanna kind of introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so yeah, my name is Kyle Grant. I'm a master's student at Concordia University, and I'm currently working in the Dianunden lab. So our lab uh, focuses on the community dynamics of forest trees their ecology and evolution, and the causes and consequences of forest fragmentation. So we use a variety of techniques, um, including different genomic and systematic approaches. Uh, in the past few years, we've kind of shifted towards uh, looking at uh, the plant microbiome, and that's what my work is mostly focused on. And so you're working on the plant microbiome. What exactly are you are you studying or what aspect of the plant microbiome are you currently looking into or are you most interested in? Yeah, so right now uh, for my thesis, uh, my research is focused on looking at uh, seasonal succession of endophytic fungi in a number of tree species. And so uh, endophytic fungi, they're fungi that infect plants, but they cause no symptoms of disease and they constitute part of the microbiome. So they have a lot of uh, functional metabolites that they produce that can be used in a wide range of applications. So uh, uh, in some cases, they modulate plant fitness. So it's they're of interest to researchers right now. So these 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 chemicals that modulate the plant fitness, can they also be used on, on humans? Is, is there a possible medical application to your research as well? Yeah, so an interesting aspect is that um, a lot of these endophytes, they actually produce uh, plant secondary metabolites. And uh, as I'm sure we all know, they plant secondary metabolites are used to synthesize a lot of uh, the medications that we use today. So, um, for example, uh, there's a, I believe it's the neem tree that's been found to produce uh, Taxol. So Taxol is a widely used uh, anti-cancer drug. And it turns out that endophytes that you can isolate from these trees actually produce Taxol as well. Oh, that's incredible. So we, so we know and, and I guess the, the final usage of some of these chemicals is going to be primarily for, um, well, for healthcare, but I guess we'll eventually synthesize that. And, and is, I imagine there's some work that's, that's being done bridging your, your work with the, uh, the kind of the pharma industry. Yeah. So that's, that's the hope at least. Um, one issue that's kind of come up is that a lot of, uh, the endophytes that have been found to produce these metabolites, they actually, um, they're ability to produce the metabolite attenuates over time when you subculture. So um, there's a lot of researchers that are looking into how we can kind of fix this issue and uh, potentially have a culturable source of these uh, different products. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, and I imagine very, very time consuming as well. Yes. Lots of lab work. Lots of lab work, lots of, lots of assistance. Yes, always need assistance. They so come then, and go. They come. It's a revolving door of assistance yeah. in that lab. So, so actually, then, what got you interested in ecology? What, uh, what focus? Did you already always know that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think um, 
you know, as a kid, I, I was always fascinated in the natural world. I was a type of um, type of kid who would bring home, um, you know, different things into the house that my parents would always slowly get rid of when I wasn't looking. Uh, rotten logs and fungus and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's a, there's a, there was definitely a natural inclination towards uh, working in biology. Um, so, you know, after I graduated high school, I ended up um, doing my undergrad in biology and uh, recently graduated. And from there, uh, decided to go into research and uh, started my master's. And so here you are. Here I am. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so during your undergraduate, did you did you do a lot of other things? Or were you primarily focused on on research, or were yeah, so, uh, were there specific classes that you enjoyed the most? Yeah. So I think initially in my undergrad, I was uh, I didn't really consider research as a um, as a career. It was I was more looking to graduate and go work in the field and do kind of contract positions. Um, and actually it was one summer I ended up reading uh, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. And um, that book, uh, I think, really inspired me to, to go into research uh, as a career. Okay. And, and specifically, I mean, it's interesting that you, you originally wanted to work in the field as a, you know, on, on contract positions, but I guess much of the work you're doing now is in the lab, or is there a, a field and a lab component? Yeah, so it's a, it's a mix of both. We're looking at um, sort of the ecology of microbial communities. So a good portion of that is, you know, going out into the field, finding plants and sampling them, bringing that back, and then doing the lab work. Um, and and so that's that's my main project for my thesis. But uh, I'm looking into some other projects as well, like uh, this. Um, this spring, we'll um, I'll be traveling to India to do some field work, and I'm sure I'm sure you already know that because <laughs> you're going to be coming with me. That's that's the plan, right? <laughs> yeah. If things work out, yeah. Yeah, if things things work out, we're we're allowed into the country. Right. <laughs> so actually, what what are you looking forward to to studying in India? Because I mean, that's a, a very very different environment than what we have here in uh, well around Montreal. Well, I think yeah, you've kind of answered the question in a way that's that's really the the biggest part of it for me is experiencing a completely new environment and just you know seeing how the ecology there how how everything works together it's it's always a an interesting experience that is well i mean we did travel to australia together right and that itself was a very a very different different environment you know being on exchange and and Kind of learning about the the wildlife there, so I imagine kind of bridging all these different different regions is going to be from a, from a plant perspective must be very interesting and yeah, I know, very exciting. I know you were mentioning insects as well. Is that another yeah another so, angle? Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess my my main interests are uh, plant insect interaction. So I'm I'm big into uh, I think insects are cool. I mean I think most people in biology think so. Um, insects, plants. Yeah, a little biased, but um, in insect-plant interaction and um, moving forward, I'd really like to um, focus a lot more on evolutionary biology and integrating that into my research. Okay, so more more the theoretical side of of, of biology is where you uh, where you see yourself in the future. Yeah, exactly, and and that's um, that's very much what I find interesting about biology is the theoretical components to it. 
Hmm. So Dawkins, Dawkins worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can see that, why I like the book. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, it's it's very much. Uh, I mean, it's a very theoretical book, but it's it's interesting that you know that that one book like that can can shift someone's view from you know just being in the field to to really these much larger larger pictures, these larger thoughts. It, it kind of shows the importance of um, scientific communication, right? It's uh, I think a lot of science is kind of um, away from from the mainstream, or it's given to you in these very uh, packaged, um, sort of easy to digest um, packets. For me, a big part of doing this podcast is uh, I'm I'm looking to improve my communication skills. Um, so that that's one main focus. The other thing is. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of um, reviewing um, some of the theoretical basis for why we do what we do. So going through papers and kind of um, increasing my knowledge on what's already out there so that moving forward, I have a better uh, baseline to work with. And it's going to be fun. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's true. That's, that it is. I'd hope, anyway. <laughs> so, okay, so I guess we should move possibly, potentially, to the one that's left us and moved all the way to cold, cold Sherbrooke. So, so Charlie. Yes. <laughs> you just got back from Australia. That is correct. That is, that is correct? That is correct. And what were you doing in Australia? So, I will introduce myself. My name is Charles Plazier, and I am indeed in Sherbrooke. Thanks for the spoiler alert. Um, I am doing my master's in evolutionary biology and population dynamics in the FESA Bianchet lab. And my project is based in Australia, as Arun mentioned. I'm working on the population of eastern gray kangaroos in the southeastern tip of Australia. And my project is on evolutionary biology of young, tiny, cute eastern gray kangaroos. Um, I spent three months on the field uh, from late August to about late November, collecting data every day and uh, capturing kangaroos, which was part also of my mandate as a master's student for my first year. And my project will be basically looking at the development and the growth strategies of Eastern Grey kangaroos from the age of 10 months all the way to three years old. So that's the about the moment when they get out of the pouch as a pouch young and they become young at foot and they grow all the way to three years old to become adults. And something very interesting about kangaroos is that they have this indeterminate growth strategy, which means they grow for the, their entire life. The males grow a bit, a, bit, a bit faster than females, and there's a huge sexual dimorphism that we can observe in the Eastern Greek kangaroos. This is not something I'll be looking at for my project, but it's something that has a huge impact on my results and on the data, and on the data I'll be collecting. So before Australia, I had a chance to go to New Zealand in the city of Dunedin and explore the scientific communication world. So what I did in New Zealand was with Natural History New Zealand, I was working on a scientific documentary production house and I was working on research for different documentary shows as well as some logging. So looking at um, documentaries that were in production and just entering the data for each video that I would be looking at. Um, and I also worked at Aurukunui Eco Sanctuary, which is an eco sanctuary based in the city of Dunedin, where I lived for a few months. And I had a chance to teach uh, youth and also university students about the wildlife and the plant life that they have in their city called Dunedin. 
um, what is very important for me in this journey of traveling around the world and doing these scientific communication trips. Um, this is something I would like to do in the future, essentially. So I would like to be able to complete my studies and afterwards enter the scientific communication world in different ways. Um, I would like to, to increase my knowledge in the field and hopefully get to the next level of the PhD to be able to... Ink. All right, let's put a break on this. How about you ask me a question? Because <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm just going back and forth right now. No, that's so. perfect. And honestly, it, I mean, you are answering the question. I mean, I, I, it's like, who are you? What, what drives you? And yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you use the word tiny and cute for kangaroos. Mm -hmm. They're vicious creatures, are they not? Yeah. Begin to like scratching fights, they aim for the eyes. That's but right. you're right. They are they are cute. I, I would say wallabies are a little bit cuter, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the the kangaroo expert in the room has a better idea of <laughs> what what uh, something interesting about wallabies. They're a bit sneakier than kangaroos, so it's a bit easier to uh, let's say uh, tame kangaroos or or yeah, I would say wallabies are a bit sneakier than kangaroos in some way. So they're usually a bit more charismatic than kangaroos. Mm. I understand that part of your research, you mm -hmm. had to run around in the middle of the night um, yeah. with a tranquilizer dart on the end of a stick. Am I correct? That is correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, so as I was saying, part of my field work was to capture the Eastern Greek kangaroos. And um, we were, we were uh, geared with um, five meter long jab sticks and also a syringe filled with a veterinary provided drug called Zolotil. Uh, and our, our our job essentially was to um, sneak behind the kangaroos and tranquilize them to be able to measure them, weight them, and take um, other morphometric measurements to be able to tell their growth and their condition from one year to the other. So each kangaroo that's on our field area, that is 1.5 kilometers square, uh, will be evaluated once a year. And females with pouch young as well will be evaluated as well as their pouch young. And that's a way to monitor the population and see the differences from one year to the next in population dynamics and also in population density and the size and the and the proportion of each individual. So have they have you seen in in because I imagine this has been going on for a number of years. Have you seen increases or, or differences in the the population size? I mean, due to something like climate change or, or hunting or or I guess what are the the issues that are that might be affecting these these kangaroos that would warrant a, a deeper look and deeper understanding into their population dynamics. So Eastern Australia is a very interesting environment uh, because it's highly variable within one season. Uh, there's high intraseasonal variability, which causes these individuals or these animals to have different strategies to survive. And uh, you're talking, you mentioned climate change. It's very interesting because with the climate change, the intensity of all these climatic events is increasing. Some events are some the war, the highest temperatures are a bit higher, the lowest temperatures are a bit lower, and that puts pressure on these animals that have to adapt in some way. Uh, something that's very interesting, as you might know, you might know, large mammals do not evolve as fast as smaller organisms because they have long generation times. So it takes them one, two, or three decades to survive or to go one, through one generation. And this reduces their ability to evolve genetically and adapt to changes in the environment. 
So what they're left with is migration. And even migration is not a really good option for them because with human settlement, they can only migrate so far and usually they don't even make it to a more suitable area before they disappear or they get eradicated, um, um, well, extirpated. That was the word I was looking for. Um, so they are left with uh, phenotypic plasticity. And phenotypic plasticity is what I'll be looking at. I'll be looking at the different growth strategies that young kangaroos can use to be able to adapt or to flourish in the environment where they are in right now. And that's actually the most proximate and the most immediate way to respond to the environment because anything else would last generations to see a change. And by the time they get to that change in their population dynamics, the environment is already different because climate change is happening so fast. Hmm. And so, okay, so this is in Eastern Australia, correct? So South, I imagine Southeastern Australia? Correct. When, and I remember you, you mentioned to me earlier on that you were actually in charge of the field station. So I, this must be a, you know, a common area for many people to come and study these effects, uh, the effects of, of climate change, but also this, this variability within populations, potentially in other species, not just kangaroos. So maybe you want to tell me a little bit uh, about what it's like actually running one of these field stations. Or being in, being being in charge. I mean, it's is a very steep learning curve, of course. Um, showing up and not knowing much about kangaroos, and the the, the next month you're the one running the field station. When I say running the field station, it's mostly uh, driving a truck and making it to the field site every day and taking the observations, working on captures and measurements. And so again, it was a steep learning curve, but I was not by myself. I had the, an experienced PG student with me who knew the field, knew how everything worked, and uh, helped me out with lots of things regarding the observations and the data collection. And my supervisor was also in the field for a few weeks as well. Um, but yeah, after the first month of learning pretty much everything, it was it was um, a bit of learning experience with making mistakes. Uh, of course, the less mistakes you make, the better it is. But when you take observations, when you have to go through captures, it's pretty quick that you, you figure out how to make it happen because you don't have to collect your data. Your data has to reflect the population and it has to reflect what's truly happening within that population and within other populations. Uh, so within the time of four or five days, I figured everything out regarding capturing kangaroos, how to mix the drugs to make sure I get the right dose for the size of that kangaroo and and measure it afterwards and make sure my measurements are repeatable. Uh, so it was, again, it was a, it was pretty hard. It was a steep learning curve, but it was very quick. And I, I learned so much and now I can call myself somewhat of a kangaroo expert. Well, it sounds like the kangaroos and that field station are in pretty good hands. So now mm -hmm. that you're back, now that you're back here, I would say Montreal, but like, once again, you've left us <laughs> to, to the other universities um or, or the other towns um around around montreal so now that you're back from from australia imagine one you miss it right given the given the snow that we were getting um i mean sherbrooke is a pretty nice city that's all i have to say <laughs> uh, montreal uh, i i do miss it but it's not very far so spending seven months away from home was i miss montreal at the time but now i feel like montreal is right next door because I am literally an hour and a half away. So it's a bit easier to get back home. And if I miss the city, if I miss everything about the city, it's pretty easy to get back there. So to answer 
your question, do I miss Montreal? Not so much. I'm doing pretty fine, pretty good in Sherbrooke. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So I also know that when you were in, in New Zealand, you, you did play a bit of hockey. That's and, right. And, uh, and that you were playing hockey back here as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's what's hockey like actually out there? And and I imagine it must be must be kind of an interesting perspective coming from a country that is known for its hockey players to um, to play for for another another team in in a country. I know I'm not sure what the the hockey scene is like in New Zealand, but also you know meeting people from a wide variety of backgrounds. I imagine some scientists and some not, and and explaining to them and, and speaking to them about the kind of work that you do, what was that experience like? Um, coming from a very hockey-friendly country, as you mentioned, and going to New Zealand was an interesting experience. Um, for the background, I did play hockey at Concordia University, and I played my entire life in minor hockey in Canada. And after my second year at Concordia, I stopped playing, and I focused on my studies. After after which I decided to go do one season abroad. And New Zealand seemed like the best option to go play ice hockey because it was an accessible hockey league and also it was a beautiful place for biologists to flourish in the world of scientific communication. So to go back to hockey, um, you show up to a new country with a very small hockey scene, uh, very small hockey communities, and you're seen as a hero because you're coming from Canada with your top gear and and uh, your skills and your hockey jargon and everything. So it was a very interesting experience showing up to the rink for the first time and seeing all these children that are passionate about the game. And they they don't know the game as much as kids don't know it here. And they definitely do not have as many resources as we have in Canada. Yet I see lots of talented kids, even with low knowledge of the game, they have the talent, they have everything they, they need to be good players in the country of Canada. So it was a great experience for me, not only as a player to play hockey on the Dunedin Thunder, but even as a coach, as a mentor for these kids, because I, I made it there and they saw me as a hero just because I was from the country of hockey. I mean, did, did a lot of them come from other scientific backgrounds and, and or was this very much a, a new new field? You know, here's the guy from Canada who is going to go poke kangaroos. <laughs> More people than I expected were Canadian around the rink, which actually is kind of contradictory because, of course, Canadians love hockey. But yeah, lots of Kiwis were of Canadian origin or had a wife or husband who was Canadian. And lots of Canadians that had moved to New Zealand went through the academic career path. Most were professors or at least had a PhD. Um, So yeah, the scientific world was pretty well represented within that hockey community. Uh, And the Canadian community in that hockey rink were mostly people who went through their studies in New Zealand, especially at the University of Otago. Um, in the biological field, I was not very, I mean, it was a pretty, the biological field was pretty misrepresented in, in the hockey community, which is, which makes sense. Um, but yes, the, as a whole, the scientific field with different scientific fields were pretty well represented in the area. That was really interesting to see. Um, but they were super interested in the work I was going to do in Australia. Uh, which was really nice, again, to be able to show up to the rink and not only bring your hockey knowledge, but be able to talk about what drives you in life aside from the game, which is science and communication and and kangaroos soon to be at that time. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting how these, you know, these communities that might not necessarily um, 
be focused specifically on just you know, just scientific communication or just ecology or, or just chemistry or, or whatever the field might be, but they still bring together a large you know, variety of expertise. And, and I think personally, maybe this is just my own, my own experience, but at least from what I've seen is a lot of times, this is where those, those big, big changes happen. It's where these new ideas come from, from it's where these, these revolutions start um, in any field. And so I imagine you know, linking linking with others through through a, a shared passion of hockey has then led to other future potential collaborations, either now or maybe even in the future. Totally agree with you on that. That's exactly what I think because these future collaborations, you do not see them coming, but just by showing up and meeting people at the different networking events that you 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 realize you have common interests and you never expected that that person might be in a completely different field could be someone in physics and chemistry as you mentioned and ends up that you're working on very similar things like kyle i'm sure people in the molecular bio biochemistry field might be working on similar topics as you uh, and you might meet them at a random sports event or at the gym and that's the beauty of the scientific world it's big and it's limitless I, I, uh, let's let me, let's let's move now back towards so from one passion to the other. So what actually got you interested in ecology? How did you how did you wind up here? Did you always know that you were going to be here, or did you fall into this this uh, kind of this passion by accident? It's a great question, Arun. To be honest with you, um, as a kid, like most kids, I was fascinated by by some animal. I was not like Kyle in that. I was completely forbidden to bring dirt in my house. I was not allowed to bring rocks or animals or logs in my house. I would get punished by my parents. Um, so I had to go outside and play in the mud for two minutes. And I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest with you. I was more of a sports guy um, and I was doing good at school. So I was encouraged my entire life to go to medicine, which is the path I decided to take until 2015 when I was at Concordia doing biology, thinking I was going to apply to medicine. And I heard about a trip to the Galapagos Islands. That was Galapagos Islands. That sounds like a pretty amazing experience. Let me look into it. And I ended up applying for that conservation trip that Concordia University was offering at that time. And it's still offering to this day, actually. Um, and yeah, I traveled to this place with no expectations, just expecting to see beautiful animals, blue-footed boobies, uh, sea lions, giant tortoises. And I showed up there and I realized that there is something very interesting about ecology, and it's, it is not only in the research aspect of it, but the communication aspect of it. There's so much in this world that we would like to share with the public. Not everyone has a chance to travel to the Galapagos Islands or to see the beautiful things that the world has to offer. And that's something I almost decided while I was there in 2015, I wanted to do for my life. I just wanted to be the person presenting the beauty of the world to the general public and there are several ways of doing so it's not only by doing david attenborough filmmaking uh documentation it is also by talking about it by asking people what drives them in life and why would you want to go get what what drives you i i believe that everyone has something deep down inside they want to explore but they won't allow themselves to explore it i had a chance to explore it without even knowing by traveling to the Galapagos Islands, and now that I've discovered what I want to do, it's right in front of me every day. And that's what I'm doing right now with this podcast again, just discussing, talking about science, talking about, about things that drive us, drive us, and also exploring things 
we do not know about. We don't know how to manage them or to or to deal with them, but it's a learning process, and that's what we're doing every day. Sounds to me like uh, you really want to want to make sure that people follow their passions above all. I think so, and when I say follow your passion, it, it's not an easy thing to do. It it requires getting out of that comfort zone and and trying these new things that you don't expect you'll be able to manage or to do. Um, it is part of the whole process, and exactly what we're doing here again. Um, well, I'm hoping to get out of this podcast, as Kyle mentioned. Uh, yes, I do want to improve my communication skills. I think everyone should and needs to improve them because that's what allows you to share your knowledge and share your passion. But it is also just to learn, to learn about new things we'll be discussing every day in this podcast. Even if I'm a master's student in ecology, there's still so much I have to learn. And I'm ready to learn these things. And one of the best ways to learn is to discuss it and just just be an open book. Just talk about things with no expectations and see what it brings us. So I'm pretty optimistic about this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, I think we'll we'll have some pretty pretty amazing uh, amazing topics come out of out of um, will come out of our discussions in the upcoming weeks and and months. And there's a whole lot we can talk about. There's a whole lot we're going to be talking about. And uh, I mean, I can't wait to chat with you guys <laughs> about this. Definitely. Um, so I suppose that kind of leaves me. My name is Arun Dainandan. I'm a master's student at Concordia University with Dr. Grant Brown. And uh, so our, what our lab does is we study chemical ecology and animal behavior. Uh, we focus on the behavioral trade-offs that exists when make, making a choice under different conditions. And we use fish as a model organism. Um, what I currently do is I look at uh, how tr female Trinidadian guppies choose their mates depending on if they've been scared beforehand or not. And so for anyone that's seen a female Trinidadian guppy, they'll know that, um, or rather a, a male Trinidadian guppy, they'll know that they're very colorful fish. Um, but having these colors takes a lot of energy. And so the more colorful a fish, we tend to say that the fish is getting a lot more nutrients. And so it's probably a lot healthier because it's survived to that point and it's a lot more fit. It's not diseased. Um, and so it's, it's usually a better choice that that male is a better choice for the female guppy to choose um for for mating and and eventually her offspring will be just as as colorful and as fit as her um her mate but there is a risk involved with that choice whenever there's a predator in the water female guppies will actually tend to choose male guppies that are not as colorful because being with a colorful male next to you makes it a lot easier for you to be eaten because the predator will will be more likely to see you and uh, so there is this trade-off that exists. So, you know, pick the most colorful male and I'll, you know, my offspring will be great. But if I pick the colorful male, there's a predator around, I'm going to get eaten. Or I can go and pick, you know, the dull male. My offspring might not be as fit. However, they're more likely to survive and I'm more likely to survive the encounter. So this is kind of what I've been focusing on for my masters. Um, I've also been looking at how this kind of, this effect of fear is transferred between the uh, between generations. So from the mother, if the mother is scared, whether or not we see behavioral changes in the offspring, whether these little baby fish are, are more likely to be scared, they're easier to scare, or if, uh, if these kind of changes um, in the mother is, is seen in the offspring as well. What is it like to work with fish and breeding fish in your own school, in your own lab? How does that work? 
<laughs> well, certainly breeding fish is, is probably the most, I would say, the, the most difficult portion of the, of the experiment. Um, because it's never, it's never a guarantee. I mean, I'm hoping that my, my, my fish breed, which itself, maybe they're not in the mood. You know, sometimes you can only lower the lights and put on some, some berry white and, and hope for the best, you know, put a little bit of red wine in the water and see if things work. Um, but it really, it really is a random, a random, uh, shot. And, and luckily guppies tend to be fairly promiscuous. And so you're more or less guaranteed if you put a male in with a bunch of females in about 24 hours, those females will be pregnant. Um, but there is no guarantee that you will get babies right away. And because female guppies will actually store sperm. So if these, these females decide that the conditions are not right, maybe the pH is a little bit high, maybe it's a little bit too cold in the water, they can just choose to keep that sperm as long as they want and not, um, not have it fertilize internally. And also they can choose just not to give birth because they are live bears, which means that they give, um, give birth to live, live offspring. Uh, unlike many other fish, which which lay eggs and have the eggs fertilized on the on the outside uh, by the males, uh, so yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, a lot that's left to chance when it comes to breeding. And then assuming that you do get young, there's always a chance that something can come by and and wipe them all out, some disease or or maybe I think uh, in I believe in uh, in your thesis project there was oil that was affecting the the young. I might be mistaken, but you might be um, announcing me something I did not know. Um, so yes, I had a project, thesis project at the end of my undergrad, and I was breeding fish as well. They were convict cichlids. Um, and they, I had my brood that hatched on the Friday, I believe. And by the Monday, after the weekend, they all disappeared from the tank. Um, for me, it was still a mystery what happened to these fish. But sometimes after the brood is is in the, the tank and you see them, something can happen. Some disease can go through the tank and just kill them all. Uh, so it's a very uncertain uh, system sometimes. Well, it's, it's for the best at the same time. It's a super interesting project. Um, so what else, Arun, do you have to tell us about <laughs> scaring fish? Why, why have you chosen that path of scaring fish for your masters? The path of scaring fish? Um, well, I mean, fear is always a very interesting thing, right? I think a little bit of fear is, is good. It's a good motivator. Um, but I, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said that this was what I was going to do. Um, you know, scaring, scaring things for a living, um, since I was a kid, I did know I wanted to go into biology. I'm lucky in that, uh, both of my, my parents are biologists, uh, my mom being a cell molecular biologist and, and my dad being a, a conservation biologist and a conservation geneticist. And um, with whom Kyle is is now working with. Yeah, didn't mention that, did I? <laughs> Surprise. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, and so, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, you know a little bit about what his work is, uh, his work is as well. And so I did know I wanted to go into biology for a very long time. The exact type of biologist I wanted to become was up in the air for a number of years. When I was younger, I wanted to be, I was planning to go more on the paleontology route and go into more kind of, and, and birds. Um, then from there, I, you know, I was bitten by the bug of microbiology. And there was a time where I actually got a, a microbiology textbook from the library. And it was my goal as an 11-year-old to 
copy down every single type or every single definition I could find in that book and understand and memorize every single species of microbe that existed, which of course we, we know now is being an impossible task for a variety of reasons. Um, probably the, the largest of which is that there is no such thing as species in, in the microbial world. Um, but yeah, so, so I did, I did want to do that. I, I used to help my dad, uh, with, with collecting samples in the field. I would help my mom out and, and spent a lot of time in, in the lab with my mom. Uh, I still remember when she showed me what I believe was a chicken muscle tissue growing in a Petri dish. And, um, yeah. And I, and the other thing too, is I, I was never really pushed into biology. I think that's usually a common question people have is, you know, Oh, were you forced into the biology track because of your parents? And no, I believe me, I've tried everything to not go down that route. Um, you know, tried a whole lot of things from computer, computer programming to, to, um, well, really just most random things, but everything at the end of the day always brought me back to being a researcher, doing science, communicating science. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and so for a bit of time as, as an undergrad, I was a research assistant at the Center for Studies in Behavioral Neurobiology with Dr. Shimon Amir. And what we did was we looked at how disruptions of circadian rhythms, so the, the rhythms which tell you when you're hungry and when you're sleepy, um, how, how disruption of those rhythms was related to things like late onset, um, dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, we used rats and mice as a model and we also looked at stress. So it's kind of like fear. So one thing we'd do is we'd scare these rats and mice either in the short term or the long term and that would disrupt their circadian rhythm and we'd look at these these changes in uh, gene expression in the brain. And this is a cool experiment, experience because I got to really understand what it's like to do research and be part of a lab and and kind of all the, the other things that one doesn't necessarily think about when one thinks of a career in, in science. Um, like when experiments don't work and, and you decide, you know what, we're just going to go go grab a bite to eat because that's all we can really do right now. I'm sure we've, we've all had that, that experience now <laughs> at least once. At least once, indeed. Um, I have a question for you regarding your parents being biologists as well, professors and uh, lab technicians. Um, we've, we hear sometimes that biology or sciences as a whole is a family thing. When parents are working in that field, the children will end up working in that field as well. What do you think, what type of sort of heritage did you get from your parents that made you go in the same path as them? Even if they haven't made you go in that path, why do you think you chose a similar career path as them? I would say it's very similar to how musicians have musician children, actors have acting children. I think just being surrounded by um, by biologists growing up, being surrounded, being, you know, my babysitters were biologists and babysitters being that, you know, the stroller would be in the lab in the corner and all the grad students would be, would be you know, taking care of me while my mom or my dad was doing work. Um, and really just being in that environment and, and growing up with, with that being the, the dinnertime conversations and growing up with that, you know, those being the type of books that we had lying around the house, you know, it, just like learning a language. I think when you're just immersed in an environment, whatever that environment might be, you just naturally pick up on it. And, and when you, you know, when you start getting good at something, you tend to want to do more of that thing, you know, whether it be a sport or an instrument and, uh, and so that definitely is a motivator. And now 
amplify that over many, 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 many years, and and you eventually get a, uh, you know, you get someone who who can't really think of doing anything else but biology. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, fantastic. I mean, there were there were other things too. I mean, so starting in the the Center for Studies in Behavioral Neurobiology, and then from there, you know, I was convinced I was going to go into neuroscience, which is very different than what I'm doing now. Uh, well, very different and similar in, in different aspects, but it was really going to the Galapagos Islands on that on well, I mean, that's where we met, right? That's that's the trip that we we both undertook, and and uh, so going to the Galapagos Islands and and volunteering on that reserve, and then also going to Australia on an exchange afterwards with Kyle and seeing all the different biomes and crazy side spiders, but then also taking courses, um, you know, at the University of New South Wales in know marine and aquatic ecology and and animal behavior and and you know biodiversity and conservation of natural resources these these courses and plant ecology um you know these these courses all all had that australian element and so it really i found a, a big difference in the in the you know the the way it was taught say between concordia and unsw was that here we focused very much on the theoretical foundations which is great and that's very very important and I found at UNSW there was a strong focus on the applied elements. So a lot of the things that I got and I learned about in, in Concordia, I was then able to actually apply in designing experiments and going to the field in Australia. And to me, that really solidified that I wanted to go into biology and specifically ecology-related research and in field ecology. Um, and then having that tie-in with the work in the Galapagos Islands and, and seeing kind of this birthplace of these ideas and how you know, how things are so different in other parts of the world. And, and you just being there, you, you kind of, I guess, like I was saying earlier, when you're, when you're surrounded by a certain type of, a certain type of idea, when you're surrounded by just all these different inputs and, and in the Galapagos, that input can be, like you said, a blue footed booby flying right next to you or a, a sea lion just hanging out on a park bench. Um, I mean, you can't help but come up with all these amazing ideas and, and things that you want to explore. Yes, that actually brings me back to my experience in New Zealand, if I might, might go yeah. back to that. Um, that's the same thing, because the scientific communication world is not as big in North America, or in Canada at least, as it is uh, on the other side of the world, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia and New Zealand. As you said, there's lots of hands-on work happening at universities. There's also lots of scientific communication programs that are available to students. And that is something that's really important, in my opinion, in our era. Not be only because we have the resources and it's much easier to transmit information but also because it's the time that we are it's time now that we understand what's happening with our world and that people in the scientific world need to learn how to transmit their science in more efficient ways and again i think that's something very useful not for people to, to have a career in scientific communication but at least be aware that it exists and it's important and it should be incorporated in our in our scientific life here in north america Absolutely. I mean, we, we look, you know, just to the south of us in the, in the U.S., there's there's so many opportunities for for um, for getting involved and learning about scientific communication. And you now I was lucky enough to be be a part of the International Wildlife Film Festival as a, as a filmmaker lab fellow and really you know, meeting some incredible scientists. Like, seriously, these guys are I, st I still I'm still surprised. Like, I, I feel like I should be, you know, bowing down to, to down to them because just the, the work that they do is, is I mean, just really cool. 
Um, and so, and also meeting a lot of really cool filmmakers who have, have with just as much passion as, as the three of us have, have with, with biology. I mean, they're dedicating their lives to communicating science and telling these stories, um, through, through various forms of media. You know, there, these, I think it's, it's interesting that these, these things exist in the U S and, and you're absolutely correct. There's, there are some opportunities in Canada, but I think we could be doing a lot more. And I, I hope, you know, with the podcast, we can kind of add, add to that body of work then and show that Canadians, you know, we care about science. We talk about science too. And um, aside from science and biology, what takes up some of your time as a master's student? Tell me you're not only scaring fish all day, right? Do you have other <laughs> passions or interests, something else that drives you, that makes you feel healthy and feel happy to go to the lab every day? Well, I mean, I guess I'm not supposed to say it, right? Is that you know, will I be uh, will I be opening myself up for some some issues if I go into detail about you know I'm not in the in the lab 100% of the time. Oh. Um, <laughs> no, I mean certainly that that work life balance is important, and um, I mean study life balance and just life balance in general. But in terms of things I do, yeah, um, I mean music. I uh, a lot of and I think a large part of my comfort in in talking to people and and kind of sharing what I'm passionate about comes from my experience playing, uh, playing guitar and, and playing music, um, back in, uh, you know, towards the end of high school and, and, and undergraduate and, and performing at open mic nights and having things go incredibly, incredibly wrong. I mean, playing songs in the wrong key entirely because I didn't realize that I borrowed a guitar from someone else who's tuned the guitar down a half step. And now I'm singing in one key and the guitar is in another. And my buddy's accompanying and he's in the same you know it's and then having people come up to you and just yell at you because you know you might be playing on open mic night at a, at a pub and they're drunk and you know when you're when you're dealing with an audience that has no filter you really get that instant feedback um so yeah so so definitely music writing a lot of music um listening to a lot of music going to concerts that's a, that's a big part of it um going to the gym i love going to the gym with kyle <laughs> he shows up <laughs> shots fired shots fired yeah <laughs> maybe maybe a light, light a bit of a fire so so i'm seeing at the gym tomorrow is is uh what i'm hearing right Kyle? yeah exactly <laughs> yeah no, def- paper trail yeah exactly no, it's, it's, it's 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 official now you have to be there tomorrow yeah, um it's documented <laughs> it's documented yeah so definitely going to the gym um and uh, and just talking about science projects like this, a uh, lot of I mean I'm juggling about seven projects in the lab right now, which is a lot of fun, and I'm really excited to be going through all of them. But that does take you know a certain amount of time. Um, yeah, it's it's really I guess I guess just following following wherever I, I kind of notice something really interesting. I uh, I have a Twitter account uh, that where I actually share papers about snails. And so any kind of snail related paper that I've read, I, I share it through there and, and other, you know, if anyone wants to learn more about snails and what's the, the latest and greatest information about snails and actually some slugs too, because they're all right. Uh, they can find that. It's, uh, it's called snail science. And uh, yeah, it's really, I think, I think for me, a big part of the master's is this, this period of exploration and, and undergraduate as well. And, and, um, having, you know, being fortunate enough to have the time and also 
the access to a, a lot of these opportunities as they come. Um, and I think it'd be a it'd be a waste to not at least give everything a shot and and find out you know, maybe there's something else out there that I'm passionate about but I just haven't come across yet. So trying a lot of new things. Uh, going to the gym, playing music, tweeting, scary fish, right? And scaring fish. <laughs> for for that one. You said something very interesting regarding um, your experience at Open Mic Night and how you need to face these critiques and it's a bit of a this bit of resilience to be able to go back on the stage and perform again and again after getting these negative feedbacks. Um, Kyle, I'll ask this question to you because we haven't heard you in the last couple of minutes, but what do you think um, resilience training from any situation in life could bring you for your career as a scientist? Do you you think it's useful to have a uh, have adversity, facing adversity in different situations in life, and how could you apply that to your scientific career? I guess you're you're applying that principle to me directly right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, overcoming adversity it's it's obviously important in anything you do, uh, probably especially in science. Uh, a lot of what we do, it's you know, there's there's no one keeping check on how much work you're getting done. It's it's all on you. So um, if you just give in to uh, kind of the pressure of the whole situation, uh, it's very easy to do. So we have to be accountable for ourselves. And that means being able to overcome adversity as it arises. And when it comes to choosing a supervisor, um, because adversity is probably directly related to the amount of help you get, um, some supervisors are very hands-off versus other ones are very in your face always asking you questions making sure you're keeping everything on track um what do you think what's the importance of choosing a supervisor and what type of personality do you need to fit with a sort of supervisor when you're looking for to do a master's or to do grad school or even an undergraduate project i think that's that, that sort of depends on the person you ask so you know some people are going to really thrive under an environment where the supervisor is very hands-off give them that freedom to kind of come up with ideas on their own. And I think that translates a lot into um, your research going forward. Uh, of course, if you're, if you're trying to just, you know, finish your master's and go into the workforce, maybe you want more of a, a streamlined uh, master's program or a, a professor who's going to give you more direct hands-on feedback. And how about if, I would like to pursue a career in the scientific field and potentially be a professor at some point in my life. Yeah, I think, um, like I said, uh, if that's the situation, you want to continue in research. I mean, me and Arun have, have talked about this a bit, but I think having a hands-off professor is definitely more the way to go because you have to overcome those hurdles on your own. You have to, I mean, they're always there to help you, but just being the one who's like solely responsible for coming up with your project idea and seeing it all the way through, that's a that's a skill that you're going to learn during your master's, and it's going to directly uh, translate into your PhD. I totally agree with that. Me to Arun, back to Arun with your story about snails, because apparently on your Twitter feed there's a lot of snails walking around or or <laughs> crawling around, I guess, and it's actually very interesting. How did you get this opportunity for from scaring fish in one month to have the opportunity? to go to India and work on snails for a few months. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, a lot of sleepless nights, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, really, 
I mean, it's, it's, so I, I mean, I, I've always won. I mean, the, the end game for me is, is to become a professor and, and to incorporate these kind of these, these ideas of scientific communication and, and, um, and, and teaching and, and everything into this kind of global um, kind of force, toward a force and, um, and policy as well. I mean, we didn't mention it earlier, but you, know, you and I were both interns with, with the, the United Nations uh, initiative, Future Earth. And, um, but so, so for me, I was thinking, you know, what's the next step for me? You know, it's, it's, I'm in my master's, uh, I've done this work so far and, and it's been going great and, and everything is, is working out very well and fish are breeding. And, um, I was thinking, well, what's, what's kind of the, the next, the next step. And actually, you know, I, it kind of does link back to, to having played music in a live setting. Um, because there was always this idea of, of, you know, you might've heard of it as like fake it till you make it. And it's this idea that if there's something you want to do, then just, you should go ahead and do it. You know, there, you don't need to be hired as this, or you don't need to be uh, an, an official X, Y, and Z, you know, to, to do something. And so I kind of took that idea, you know, I don't have to have sold X amount of, of records and then, you know, then I'm a musician. It's like, well, no, I can, I can incorporate that mindset and that will lead me there. So in a similar vein, I was thinking, well, I know I want to be a professor. I know I want to run my own research institution. I want to have my own research program uh, where I'm training, you know, this next generation of scientists. And so to me, it made sense to then treat, treat my, I guess, my free time as well um, as as someone who is trying to establish themselves as a professor would. And so to me, that the, the, the next logical step was, you know, come up with an idea and and apply for funding as as new new professors do, um, and uh, and from there, you know, come up, apply, and and just hope to get funded. And if you know, and and I was lucky enough that that an idea I came up with related to snails um was funded and so here i am now and in, in a few months we'll be taken off to to india and i'll be looking at a uh, an invasive invasive species of snail it's actually a species of snail that's endemic to the region um but has become invasive due to things like climate change and land use changes uh, such as conversion to agriculture and uh, it's become a pest on a lot of these indigenous run plantations cardamom plantations so to me, also being very involved with with kind of the conservation world through the Montreal chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, um, to me it made sense to it, it always makes sense that biology and science in general should be applied, and we should always be working to give back to others, give back to the to the people around us, both in our immediate vicinity but also the broader broader global community. And so, to me, this project was. Um, it incorporated a lot of these elements where I was both doing the scientific exploration and breaking new ground and, and looking at these kind of areas where I feel that behavioral ecology has not ventured into before, but also making sure that the, the results of this project are immediately applicable to the, the, the problem at hand and that I can actually help you know, people on the ground that are living their day to day lives with with a problem that that can be solved. So that's kind of you know a very long long-winded version of answering your question as to how I how I found myself on a you know in a in a couple months heading to 
to India. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a fantastic explanation. And I was, my next question was actually going to ask you if you can explain us what the topic of your project would be in India. And now that we know it, I will move to the next question. <laughs> so what do you think um, that taking initiative ability will bring to you and it will make you stand out? I mean, this is not a competition or anything, but how do you think it will make you stand out compared to other students when it will come to go to the next level, which is a PhD and then postdoc? What do you think it will give to you as a tool? I would, I would say, I mean, the, the experience of writing grants was a big one. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had, I had, I mean, I'd written, you know, scholarship applications and fellowship applications in the past. And, and those are, those are written very differently than a grant application, because with those, you're, you're kind of speaking more as to what you've already done. Um, and, and you, I mean, you are convincing someone to fund you because, you know, look at me, I, I've worked really hard and this is what I like. And, you know, maybe we can work together on this. Um, whereas with, with a grant application, it's, or, or an application for, for a project specifically, it's just, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a different process in the sense that even before you've hashed out all the details of the project, you need to start writing. Uh, and, but it's also amazing because as you write these applications after applications, you start to form these ideas in a much stronger sense. Like, what might have first started off as a little bit of a fuzzy idea for your first application, by your last application, you know, if you can persevere, because it really takes a lot of perseverance to, to get through and, and apply and apply and apply and, and always be working on this idea and making it as, as solid as possible. You know, by the end of it, you've, you've really got a solid question to answer and, and a way to do so. Um, so, so out of this whole, um, you know, this whole process, I, I think that's what I've, I've, I, so far I've gained the most out of. Um, and it'll really be, to me, a way for me to kind of, kind of learn what it, what it's like to be a, a professor, potentially, you know, a small part of it anyway, uh, until, or rather before I, I you know, hopefully one day become an actual professor. <laughs> Fantastic. Perfect. Thank you very much for this. Um, do we have anything else to add? I see that we are at one minute, 30 seconds. That we are, Any yeah. topic we'd like to cover? You know, we could definitely be going on and we might even maybe in the future do a whole episode on what it, what it means to be a scientist um, yeah. and what, our, and what our, our view of the scientific world is because I think that's definitely something that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up actually, Charlie, because um, I think it's an important thing to, to discuss, especially... For, for undergraduate students or, or those that might be listening that are, are considering a career in science to, um, you know, th there's a lot of, of, of things that I think, you know, resources, for example, or even just ideas that one might not get right away. And, and just, you know, hearing and, and discussing that, I think, um, I think it could, it could lead to a whole, a whole episode, even multiple episodes, to be honest. <laughs> those i think you have to talk about the imposter syndrome because that thing uh, yeah. does exist and not a, not only in the scientific world but in everything uh, and it's funny because most people when they reach a certain level they were aspiring to they'll feel that oh absolutely and i think you know especially our experience through the the biology student association biology graduate student association and you know having done you know everything from the alumni panel mentorship program and and networking events i think i think 
yeah, I think I think at least I have a lot to say. I get to be talking about it forever. Um, <laughs> no, exactly. For, for me as well. I mean, the way I want to get out of the podcast uh, is to help out the broader community of students. Um, when we were undergrads, we had access to some resources because we were involved in the right association at the right time. But at the same time, we saw these students that were looking for help and did not get the help they wanted on time. So if they have access to that extra resource and know um, there is something interesting to get from the scientific world, that's something they can build a career onto that. And lots of people are very motivated. They just don't have a direction yet. And we can help them out choosing their direction, whether it is science or it is not science. At least they'll know what there is or the scientific field has to offer. And I think this podcast can help out not only by telling them the fun parts about reading articles, but also understanding what is the true reality of the scientific world. You know, even professors are still learning. You know, even even David Attenborough is still learning, I'm sure. And if he's not, I'd like him to call me and tell me why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything else you guys want to want to bring up? So, so this was Arun, Kyle, and Charlie with the Ecology Podcast. See you next week. <laughs> you got the the Discovery Channel voice going. Thanks. I'm working on it. <laughs> Ten times every night before we went to bed.